Hey, this is Jesse Aving at Lingo Live, and I'm listening to Chris Smith at Culture Matters. Build your cultural confidence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. My name is Chris Smith and you're listening to episode number 94. If you have not subscribed to this show, this is the perfect moment to do so. Do this in iTunes and in Stitcher. Episode 94, as I said, we have Jesse Ebbing uh, as our guest this week. Um, and Jesse is the Chief Learning Officer at Lingo Life and oversees the development of the company's learning program and coaching community. Focused on situated approaches to learner development, his learning program design leverages meaningful relationships, real-world contexts, and behavior change models for optimal impact. His primary mission aims to empower people with the confidence and knowledgeable skills to participate fully and authentically in a target community. Concurrently, Jesse is writing his dissertation on online language coaching for learners of heritage languages for his PhD program at the University of Texas at Austin. And we cover all this and more in this podcast. Uh, and it's interesting for those people who are interested in learning foreign languages because we're not only talking about um, the United States, we actually take it across the globe. So make sure you listen and also stay tuned for the three excellent tips that Jesse leaves at the end of the episode. All right, here we go. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey, Jesse, good morning. Or what time? What, what time is it actually? Yeah, good morning. It's still, uh, we're at 11, uh, 11 in the morning here in New York. Uh, here in New York, you just revealed one of the questions that I have for you, which is, um, okay, opening question, always the same, because we, um, I, I don't know you that well, but we did chat before uh, hitting record, uh, but the audience needs to know you as well. So do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, uh, where are you now? We know New York, but maybe it's interesting to know which part of New York, and mm-hmm. what is your so-called cultural frame of reference? Yeah. Um, So I am originally from Wisconsin. Uh I grew up on a a dairy farm in southwest Wisconsin in a small rural community. Uh Uh, My parents are farmers from generations back. Uh Uh, They came from from the Holland sort of uh, Germany area of the world, maybe two, some hundred years ago. And so that's kind of, I don't know, it's probably a bit, little bit too deep, but... Uh, oh, it's cool. It's nice. Yeah. We, and they just kind of stayed in the same place in southwest Wisconsin since they arrived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And so I yeah, farming is sort of where I got my start, but it's, I couldn't be further from that now exactly. here in New York City. Um, the path that sort of led me here was really just education. Um, I went on, I went to school to become a teacher, Spanish teacher in particular, um, went to Minneapolis to do that for a while and then moved to Austin, Texas, where I got my, um, did my graduate work in Hispanic, 
uh, linguistics, second language acquisition, sociolinguistics, and met Tyler Muse, the CEO and co-founder of Lingo Live, while I was in Austin, Texas, um, maybe five years ago in March. And we started talking about this project he was working on and eventually just kind of kept in touch about it until it became something much bigger than it was five years ago. And so I moved to New York because of this specific project, Lingo Live. And I am now in Manhattan. I live in the Hell's Kitchen, Midtown area of Manhattan. So right. that's literally like eight, yeah. Ninth Avenue, something that area. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tenth between tenth and eleventh over yep. Close to the water, which yeah. is great, but couldn't imagine something further than from like feeding calves uh, <laughs> to yeah, walking my Shih Tzu dog to the 8th Avenue, 42nd Street train station. Right. Uh, it's just a yeah, completely different world. So what would it take for you to become to become a far farmer? What would it take for me to <laughs> go back and be know. a farmer? Uh, at what um, price? Well, at what cost would you do that? I know. Um, it would have to be my mom begging me and telling me that she really <laughs> needed me to do this for her and only for someone else. Could I probably be right. roped into right. doing that? Right. Right. Um, right. Right. I do some work still with the farming community. I do some like hosting some meetings, translating. There's a lot of uh, people who speak Spanish in that area who work on farms. Uh -huh. um, and so I get called in a lot to translate for, or like interpret employee uh, reviews or monthly meetings or, you know, there's so there's a, I'm, I'm like vague, like just peripherally in touch with it. One just toe still. One toe still in it, and that's okay. plenty for me. Yeah. All right. Just out of out of my curiosity, uh, and also for the audience, because fifty percent of the audience comes from the U.S. and fifty percent comes from outside of the U.S. I guess most non-Americans would be able to place the United States, but Wisconsin is that uh, upper Midwest? Yes, exactly. We are literally like in the center of the United States, the very top. Right. Um, we have a border with Canada. Actually, it's probably just Lake Superior, but yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you are also, that's that's a question that popped in. Uh, you're also writing a dissertation uh, on online language coaching for learners or learners of heritage languages. And this yeah. is a doctorate again. Can you can you fill us in a little bit more about what that is about? I can try. Um, so yeah, because yeah. <laughs> those, doc, those PhDs are very specific. So don't confuse us, but just, just shed a little bit light on that if you can. Yeah, I think it's, um, I've really done a lot of work with, um, I would say like Hispanics in, in the U.S. Most like when I say heritage learners, what I mean by heritage is somebody who grew up in a household yeah. where the dominant language in the U.S., English, is not the language necessarily of the household. Um, and so one of the issues is that we want to preserve diversity within the United States, mm -hmm. although that's very difficult to do, yeah. um, especially when it comes to preserving language. Uh, across generations specifically. So um, I'm just trying to help people find ways to approach this issue. So when we get, for example, um, Hispanics in the university mm -hmm. who have grown up with Spanish in the household, but we're not, did not go to school in a Spanish environment. We're not educated in Spanish. So right. maybe their literacies are, levels are a little bit lower. Um, they were educated in English, et cetera, but they want to stay connected to their culture, but specifically to their linguistic roots, and they want to develop that. Maybe they want to work in the embassy. Maybe they want to work in a Spanish-speaking country or right. even some of their towns that are very bilingual. Um, they want to be more poised to uh, be professionally productive in Spanish as well as English. 
Um, it's really a tricky task to yeah. develop this language that you spoke as a child, but were never educated in that language, and to become sort of gain, maybe develop a, an academic register in that variety. Um, and there's also a lot of identity issues that come along yes. with that, right? So like maybe you were critiqued a lot as a child by, by your grandparents. It's often by those closest to you who yeah. say, oh, your Spanish seems a little – um, they'll use terms street like pocho, Spanish. street Spanish, yeah. kitchen Spanish. You just, yeah. yeah. And so you often start to, I don't know about often, but I think what we notice is that people can um, really internalize some of that, that critique, even if the critique is positive. They think, wow, people are just paying a lot of attention to my language. So you stop using it over time yeah. because it gets so much attention. Um, and it kind of tends to, I don't know. I don't like deteriorate. A tough as a strong word, um, but it can have real implications for the way you use Spanish, or even if you use it all, at all anymore. Um, so the coaching aspect of it, the online kind of language coaching, I think is really important. I'm trying to prove or make a hypothesis that it's really important to helping people overcome not only the linguistic issues. Oh, I don't really have a strong control of the subjunctive. Um, but also the affective issues of like motivation, confidence, a sense of belonging in a community um, to really just sort of look at yourself, see yourself as enough, not have to feel like you are lesser of a person because you are not a full participant in a certain community right. or don't speak a language fully. Um, I think one thing that I hear from participants often is that they feel like they are stuck between two worlds like they are from two worlds but not really of either of those worlds or fully accepted by either of those worlds um and so what i'm trying to do which is a it's just a small like frame shift but is to see yourself as somebody who lives between two worlds or maybe in the peripheral peripherality of two worlds but you are a connective tissue between different mm -hmm. cultural worlds or linguistic worlds or, you know, you, you serve a very important purpose from my perspective and maybe like yeah. the evolution of humanity is to connect different people from different places, different ways of thinking. Um, so I don't know if it's going that well, but it's kind of my, yeah, that's my goal. Am, am I correct in thinking that then your, your audience for this is generally second generation, second gen, second generation newcomers, if that makes sense? Because, yeah, because I reckon that in general, uh, at least from my understanding, that's how it goes. First generation, and we're we're using Spanish or Latinos as an example. This goes for the Indians. This goes for the Turks. For everyone yeah. who who emigrates uh, immigrates to the United States in in this particular case, of course. Mm -hmm. So the first generation generally doesn't speak; only sticks to the mother language and the mother culture. The second generation is with one leg, like you said, in two world, one world, and the other leg in another world, and the third generation. Spanish is maybe not the best example, but typically for Indians, for instance, third generation Indians in any country, they, they have little association with the home country, the mother country, if you want. And, and with what you do, um, are you, I would guess your intentions would be, would be very positive. It must be. Uh, but generally the second generation seems to have, have the most problems or generate the most problems because they're being criticized on one side because they don't fit in on that side and they're being criticized on the other side because they don't fit in there. So it, it like you said, it's caused a lot of identity issues for these people. Like, what do I do? Where do I belong? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're right. It is mostly second generation. Um, 
I think we said before, yeah, I'm using Spanish or Latinos as an example or Hispanics yeah. because that's my primary focus and I'm in the Spanish and Portuguese department. So it has to be related. And it's just sort of my like maybe my cultural frame is more I have more experience and exposure to these groups um, than others. But, yeah, I, it, I think it is very we do. People often talk about that three generation shift model yeah. um, for language and culture. And one thing different, maybe you talked about, like between Indian immigrants and Spanish or uh, people of Spanish speaking descent is that in the U.S. there may be stronger pockets of communities based on our sociopolitical history right. that like Spanish was here before English. There are a lot like we have a lot of border with Spanish speaking country, Mexico. Yes. Um, so in those areas, you do see uh, Hispanic communities maintaining Spanish dominance for beyond three generations of being here. But I think any more, but in a lot of cases where people immigrate from Spanish to into the United States, emigrate into the United States, into an area that's not a border community, um, you do see these same typical, like first, second, by the third generation, more or less, um, they're fully like Americanized in some way. I don't know if these are proper terminologies, but like, yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, we we understand what you what you mean with that, and I think the difference between typically between the Latinos and and say the rest of the world, even if you want, if um if you if you listen to the news, um, American news, CNN, CNN, and Espanol, for instance, that is, I mean, every third word would be Estados Unidos. Every, mm -hmm. It is it is the United States has has such an influence on on I guess I mean on reality on perception of of well Latinos in general. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, the further south you get, that might get less, but nonetheless, I mean, every Venezuelan has an American bank account, for instance. Yeah. That is, that, it's, it's that, is that kind of concept I'm generalizing here. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I, I want to step back and because you mentioned you did your initial, initial, uh, PhD in Hispanic linguistics, correct? Mm hmm. How, yeah. That's how yeah. are Hispanic linguistics different from U.S. linguistics? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so Hispanic linguistics really just means to focus on the Spanish language in particular when studying linguistics. Um, clearly, we have a program that asks us to look at linguistics from a more global perspective. Um, but then in the end, we're supposed to be focusing on issues related to the Spanish language and culture as it relates to language use or, or just linguistic properties. So could be very theoretical, but always using Spanish language to test theories. Um, it could be very applied, um, which is more the realm that I get into. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it just means really studying language through the perspective of Spanish language. Okay. Is there, there's this, this, this thing, um, I hear, Americans saying, well, we have a very rich language. English is a very rich language. We have the most words. Uh, look, look at Shakespeare, you know, nobody would understand it. Why not? <laughs> because he used, what is it, 12,500 words or something like that. Is that, is that, is there any truth in that? Does, does, does Spanish have more words or less words or? That is, huh. I've actually never thought about the number of words in a language to allow it to express things more or less. Richly, uh, yeah, because it, it, it's so subtle. Yep. Okay, I, I know. Of course, I mean the whole setup in terms of, of Spanish is totally different. In terms of the, mm -hmm. the conjugation of verbs, is very different. Which in yep. English we construct, we use multiple verbs to actually construct a certain time and place situation. Um, but that I understand. I was just curious if you would, if you would, if you would have the definitive answer to that question: <laughs> Who has the most words? 
Uh-huh. I do not have the definitive answer to who has the most words. And I will I feel okay saying I do not know the answer to no, that. That's perfectly fine as well. Because nobody seems to know so far. Right. So that um, that does not make a difference. Um you work at, at Lingo Life, um and you which is a company that uh that is a well a language learning company, if I may say it as disrespectful as that. Sure. Um, and you are uh, we had the CEO, Tyler Muse, a couple of weeks ago. You mm-hmm. are the chief learning officer. What is it? What do you do? What What does a chief learning officer do? Yeah, and I think the title can be a little misleading because in most organizations, a chief learning officer is someone who is in charge of the HR department, especially like learning and development like uh, areas. So what it's maybe better uh, if I recall like the chief uh, so learning period. program. <laughs> chief, yeah. <laughs> no Indian. Chief. <laughs> uh, no, I just okay. So um, I, I had the learning community team here at Lingo Live, and we develop the approach um, that our coaches use uh, and help guide and, and educate them on what what our beliefs are and best practices, and try to empower our coaches yep. with this information. Um, we work with the engineering team to try to build it on the back end, so there, there's support there. Um, we do, yeah, we hire the coach community and try to create the community around the coaches so they feel supported, valued, and connected here. Mm-hmm. Um, we liaise with all the other departments to make sure they understand sales, marketing, uh, what uh, customer success, so they understand what we're doing here in this program, what learners and coaches are doing when they connect, what the progress and impact should look like from this program, how they should be measuring it and reporting it. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that's more or less, yeah, we provide webinars for coaches. I mean, there's a lot of different things we do, but all along the lines of how we go about creating the impact that we are trying to create at Lingo Live. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And because your approach is quite different. I mean, um, what is it? Duolingo, I think that's, that's, I think that's an app that a lot of people seem to know. Um, yeah. that is, that is like prompting words and stuff like that. Uh, but you do this actually coaching. So you could be my Spanish, my Spanish teacher, uh, yes. being, being from like either Mexico or Guatemala or a native Spanish speaking country. Yeah, true? exactly. Yes, yeah, true. Okay. True. So how do you, how do you, um, uh, I, I think I asked this question to Tyler as well. How do you, in, in, in this particular example, uh, if you have this teacher from Guatemala, how do you prompt, how do you prep him for an American student? That's how do you prep them for an American? What do you particularly mm-hmm. say that you would not say well, to an American? Because that is so obviously obvious. Ah, interesting. Um, I think we, for now, we actually probably take it from a different perspective, but I'm going to take that into account when I start to think about how we prep our coaches. We really think more from the learner perspective, okay. I think, still. Like we think, okay, who is the learner that's coming in? Mm-hmm. Uh, we expect maybe our coaches to be a little bit more like of this kind of global-minded nature. Where, okay. But you're, I think you're making a really good point without necessarily making a point is that maybe we should also tailor our education for our coaches to their cultures of reference as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But we ask them more to think about the learner from that perspective. Like where's the learner coming from? Uh, What company are they working with? Uh, What's their personality, their learning styles? Um, Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That, that makes good sense. I don't want to put you on the spot like that. It is just, you know, I, I am, it happens to be, and this is apparently how the universe seems to work. Uh, I'm a Spanish student myself. 
Um, and I'm in my, uh, my second fast year, which means uh, this would be my third year or fourth year coming actually. Um, and I've had a couple of teachers and one, one is so different from the other. Uh, so that the approach and, and these are, these, these are Belgian, uh, teachers. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they teach me as an individual. Uh, so, but their, their approach even seems to be different. Um, if, oh, totally. so, and, you know, and I know I can remember from my, from my high school years that, you know, if I, from, for math, which I had, I was struggling with one teacher, I, I just got B's all, all over and C's all over. And I did the same a year later and I got A's and well, B's and A's, et cetera, B plus just because the teacher is different. So yeah. that is, that is really important. And, and so how, how at this moment, how do you select coaches for this case? We, we, it's partially, it is a bit of trial and error, but we have mm -hmm. a matching algorithm that tries to match. Right. We get coaches to input maybe what their passions and strengths are. Mm -hmm. um, we lead with sort of the skills-based curriculum. So over the last few years of working with, let's say, engineers in the tech industry, we understand what some of the most popular skills or category of skills that they're looking to work on, like interpersonal skills skills or leadership skills or pronunciation or like and so we have coaches sort of self um, assessing as this these are my passions these are my strengths in these areas and then when and then when learners come in and they're doing their diagnostic about what sort of things they're looking to work on we start with that kind of this algorithm that matches based on passions and interests mm -hmm. and we start there coaches do a bit like a human needs analysis, right. uh, working, just trying to get to unpack some of this stuff. Who is this learner? What are they looking to get out of this program? Um, if they find in the first lesson or two that it's not a great match, then we, based on the information we've gathered through the diagnostic and through the interactions in our learner success team who comes in after the first lesson to meet with that learner, we get a better, more holistic picture of who this individual is. And then if that first coach didn't seem to be really working out in the first lesson or two, mm -hmm. then we say, okay, actually, based on all this information, we have a human algorithm yeah. Um, oh, yeah. that says, hey, I think you would work really great with Sherry Choi because she's amazing at working yeah. with females who are looking at empowerment issues and self-advocacy skills. And that's what you seem to be looking for. And let's see if this works. Yeah. Um, so there's initial, initially there's, there's a, a technical or, or paper match if you want. And then mm -hmm. of course, if it doesn't, then you use common sense evidently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the end that's because it, it is because I mean, language is so much more than, than, than culture as well. And so much more than words. So you, it, it, yeah. you need, you need that, that, that click with someone, I guess. Yeah. Typically the method you told, that you're using. No, I, I totally agree. I think it's the foundation of what we're doing. It's also, I mean, it's sort of like to go back to my dissertation, it's kind of the underlying foundation of what I'm trying to say is that that relationship piece is as important as anything. I think that's a big comment and it's probably difficult to fully prove that right. um, in a scientific way. But right, that relationship offers you the entry point into a new culture, a new community, a new yes. way of thinking. Yes. Um, you want to be invested and motivated to have these interactions and communicate about these things um, and feel also safe in doing so. You might need to express, like I use the word, you know, Americanized earlier. With my coach, they may direct me to a better word choice, but I need to feel safe in expressing myself fully sure. so you can write like guide me in the right direction um, and also start to pick up on my patterns. So that relationship 
in itself, like the meaningfulness of that relationship, I think is really, really important. Um, the safe, trusted environment that that relationship creates is also incredibly important, yeah. um, but also the longevity of that relationship, just so that you as my coach can pick up on patterns and personality yeah. quirks and other things that are holding me back, ways of yeah. thinking, et cetera. Yeah. For the, for the, you say you approach a lot from the learner perspective. Um, with that, does, does it make sense in terms of learning, learning speed, I would say, um, to occasionally switch uh, coaches and teachers? Because yeah, sort of. Is that yeah. good or, or, or not good? I mean, I think it's great. Um, I know we do have a lot of learners on our platform who really prefer to just to stick with their one coach. Yeah. Um, but I definitely advocate for multiple different interactions, right? I mean, right. it's a great way to test new hypotheses or, you know, or things between you and me can be great and it makes sense. And you've also... we. What, okay, here, I want to say this. What happens between two people as they communicate more and more over time is they start to develop their own in, interlanguage or sort of a, almost like pigeonize, right? Sure. So in the end, what, what I needed to express in three comments or three statements, I might now be able to express with a head nod. Yes. Um, so it also allows me to become a little bit lazier yep. in some ways with my speech as we become more aligned. Yep. Um, so I think disrupting that alignment is great because it forces us to have to communicate fully or with or bring our ideas to a new person and um so in some ways it's probably good to have that ongoing relationship with mm -hmm. one person but uh maybe sort of a polyamorous type yeah. approach to learning like having a few other people that come in and they're not better or worse than the other coach but just a different experience yeah, yeah it's like I, I, in a way i mean the analogy that comes to my mind is that if you're if you're working out if you're doing fitness exercise doing the same exercise time and again time and again you know your your body hence your muscles get yeah. used to it so changing that is actually good for your well your physical development as well yeah. so um so what you're saying is that what i'm doing is correct i do I have my teacher four hours a week, my my formal teacher. Then I have a friend of mine who lives here who I meet in person once a week for an hour or something. And then I have an online buddy in, in South America who I uh, I Skype with and then chat with. And that so that's a good a good mix in a way. I should be fluent I in no time. Yeah, I mean definitely <laughs> you should be proficient and your ability you should feel comfortable going into pretty much any situation, yeah. I think. Not and yet. being able to handle not it. Yet. Not yet. How, yeah. Oh, are no. you I mean no no you no. feel you feel it working though? I mean oh, yeah, what yeah, is yeah, your of course, of course, of course. I'm I'm able to express a lot more than I used to, I mean than a than a year ago. Um but still there's so many things that um yeah, that I, I just keep making mistakes. You know, the this the, the the fact they have to do verbs for to be in terms of yeah. you are you are um well married again is is, is the wrong example. Mm -hmm. But you are Jesse, uh, but you are there. It's in English is the same, and in my Dutch language is also one word for to be. Yeah. And here you have to know which one to use which, you know, that's that's difficult in um, in Spanish. Um, I'd like to. I'd like. This is not about my Spanish teaching, by the way. Uh, although I did write down subjunctive, which is upcoming uh, next. I think uh, that is something. No, that, it's, that well, is, I think, but it is sort of about your Spanish. Like I love because these are different ways of like through sort of Warfian right like uh, views. Like the way you speak a language really shapes the way you see the world. Yeah. And that you know, people it, we don't have maybe as much use of subjunctive in English or you know in Dutch, but but in Spanish they do, and you can express different types of certainty or the way you feel or position yourself yeah. 
to an event or the truth of that event differently, right? And um, so that's, yeah, I think it's really important culturally as well to know that these differences exist and it gives you maybe a a small glimpse into, uh, you know, why people say or do the things they do potentially. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. And hopefully that will develop um, as I progress in my language abilities. At this moment, I'm just more confused. Yeah. (laughs) But do you get chances to travel and use it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Spain is close, um, mm-hmm. which, I mean, uh, we have relatively cheap flights. So that's a that w- that's a relatively a good escape. Um, but I, could, I go to South America as well. Uh, so yeah. that's, uh, that's that's fine. Um, I want to I, I just want to uh, move to a, a different topic because that's a, it's a it's in the email. Your colleague, Crystal, wrote me the email and she she announced you. So I'm making air quotes here. She announced to you as, as Jesse's, Jesse is a very uh, passionate speaker on the in, uh, intricacies of intricacies, intricacies, that word? Intricacies. Yes, intricacies. of language, culture, and authentic belonging. Uh-huh. So the, that's the, that's the part I didn't quite understand. So what in your concept, either from yourself or from your, your position in Lingo Life, is authentic belonging? Authentic belonging, I think, is a concept that if I ever try to write it in my uh, academic work, my advisor crosses it out and says, what does this even mean? That's a good question, at least. I didn't know. Uh, so yes. yeah. um, Well, okay. So there's a sociologist, uh, Brene Brown from the University of Houston, who talks about the concept of belonging versus fitting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm stealing a little bit from her, but... Uh, from what I understand, right, belonging is just this feeling that you come to a group and at any point you you are enough. You are exactly who you are. Mm-hmm. You are not trying to change yourself um, for the sake of how others will respond to you. To fit in. Uh, yes, to fit in, right? right? Um, and so when we come to this like sort of full acceptance of who who we are at any given moment, mm-hmm. um, that that is sort of maybe an idealized state. Uh, but it does seem to be as humans, we're often just trying, we're trying to fit in and we're trying to, we're trying to anticipate other people's reactions to our behaviors or our language or communication and then change them accordingly. Um, cause we are human, human beings, right? Have these alignment strategies because we are adaptive creatures. Alignment between people is what has allowed us maybe to survive. Um, and in some ways speaking, so I think it's natural that you, people are trying to align, to anticipate, to show you that I'm not a threat. I am with right. you. We are together in this. Um, and so, I, you know, this idea of belonging is really important, or even authenticity. So we, when you're trying to teach language or communication or culture or even any type of skill, you want it to be something that eventually the person integrates either pieces of that skill into their authentic way of being. So meaning like, you're not asking somebody to do something that is just so outside of themselves mm-hmm. and it feels really forced. Um, and so when you think about behavior change from this perspective, you really have to under, like, you really understand how long these things can take and how much different types of interaction are required and mind setting and mind shifting. Um, and if you're not okay with who you are, if you're just trying to fix yourself to mm-hmm. fit in your, pro- these behaviors are always going to feel a little inauthentic mm-hmm. Or it's just not going to stick. Um, right. 
Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like inauthentic. Inauthentic that makes well for me that makes makes good sense. You're not real, and and if you're not real, it's going to be it's going to take an effort. And if you always have to do put in an effort, it'll feel like this pair of shoes where the left shoe always hurts because it's mm-hmm. it's never never good, never never well, real real. Yeah, right. It makes good sense. Okay, um, I have uh, three more questions. I, that's that's just two. This is three more questions. <laughs> yeah, three more questions. Just out of curiosity, and and if you don't want to answer, that's perfectly fine as well. If from your perspective, your experience, can you explain the love hate relationship? But what what the Americans have, or some Americans have, with the Latinos? You know, you you you. Hmm. There is a population that wants to throw them out. There's even a population or a tiny population, one man even that wants to build a wall. And then again, there are many people that say, you know, it's no way we need them. Uh, I think the current trend at this moment is, is that the, the opposition against Latinos in the U.S. is going, is, is, is becoming less. So what is that? What does it come from? It, well, I think it stems from centuries of you know, uh, probably like a back to like sort of socio-political historical context uh, with in the United States before it was even the United States um, when pe- when Spaniards who had originally come to Mexico and then started to explore the what is now the southerly U.S. Yeah, um, they you know they started to create this. There was this air, you know, maybe like this. I don't know Spanish uh, like. Tex-Mex, really, like a yeah. uh, group of people who were there. But then you had sort of the original Anglos who lived in, in the southeast part of the U.S. who sort of come and moved into that area, um, the colonial people, whatever. And they had maybe already a background. This is this maybe is too deep, and I'm not 100 – I'm not – like a historian in this no, way, I so I'm going to caveat some of this right now, but uh, <laughs> that they were already used to um, this idea of hierarchy within uh, within society, that it is okay to, they had slaves, it's okay to own people, it's okay that one person is better, one person serves another person, and, and, the, and some of this is some of the early relationships that existed in some of these early colonies um, that were set up in like the Texas area, maybe in California, um, and and so there's already that tension very very early on in the 16 1700s, um, and and so I think you know some of that is very very old. Some of it is also just this notion of like once you have gained kind of ubiquitous power in a place, anything that threatens that is something that maybe that causes you some discomfort. Um, and you know and people do like to see themselves fit into some sort of hierarchy. And um, although it'd be nice, maybe if we got to a place where that wasn't so much the case, but like you do, um, so you do see trends, I think now, like you said, like some people, maybe even is nearly 50, 50, or I'm not even sure where the U S stands on this right now. Well, that's not important either. I mean, that's that's not the point, but but your main, your main thing would be that it's, it's a, it's a historical uh, origin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Is that correct? It, yeah, roots back many centuries and persists today. Yeah, this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's awkward that this, these feelings sort of they 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 linger on so long. This must be. I know, it's a bit outside of the scope of this of this podcast, but it, but this must this is in a way this taught behavior. Yeah, I mean, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, passed down and just reinforced through different social 
or, or through media, you know, that says there are people who are at different levels of status within this country. Yes, and sir. yeah, yeah um, it's interesting also, I think that it's also sort of reinforced like within the cultures themselves. Right. So sometimes you can hear like second generation uh, immigrants are as critical to first generation immigrants as people with a critical voice who have been here for many generations um, because people are sort of programmed to see difference and position yourself to, to place space between you and this other thing. Right. Um, and I think that's a little unfortunate from my perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, sorry for usually I, I end up on a, on a, on a lighter note <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather than digging into, um, to deep and sensitive politics. Uh, usually I tend to avoid politics because it's, it's outside of the, of, well, of the realm of culture, at least the one that I want to, uh, to talk yeah. about. So let's do court. Let's move towards those last two questions. Um, the, um, the one but last question is, can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent from your experience, your work experience, uh, your personal life, anything goes? Yeah, I think one of the biggest pieces is to try to find ways to develop empathy right through. And that comes through this sort of developing relationships with as many people from different perspectives as possible and interacting in as many different ways as you possibly can and putting yourself in positions that allow you to develop maybe truer empathy. It's one thing to, to know about a hardship somebody has faced, but it's another thing to have experienced it to, it, to some degree through yourself, if not at least hearing and knowing somebody intimately who's gone through it um, and processing it that way. Um, so I think that developing empathy through relationships and interaction is probably one of the, the best uh, things that I can say that kind of involves many different things, but obviously there are the, you know, the, the typical ones like traveling and whatever. But the, I think the third thing that I would say besides those two pieces is really working with somebody who can help you see things differently. I think one of the things that has been eye opening for me going through a grad school program, right? I come from a rural area where maybe education isn't the top value of this, whatever, but what I've learned through education is how to see things differently that like, even I've seen maybe like a model or two that you've used for talking about culture and, and maybe it helps you think like, Oh, what I thought was the problem was X, but now that I understand it from a different perspective, right. I see the true issue is really uh, X, Y, and Z. Yes. Um, and it's that you know, Dutch people see learning through more of a spiral cycle. Yeah. And whereas Americans go more of this like trial and error method that looks like a staircase. And so, Oh, now I see, I thought the difference was because I am passive aggressive and you yeah. are, you know, whatever, but really I see it's maybe different. It's more embedded in our culture and that's how we communicate. So giving, get help, having someone help you, maybe like a coach, I'm not trying to advocate for coaching, but like no, somebody who can enlighten you in some ways as to how things really work. Um, yeah, and then just having experiences and developing empathy. Okay, good stuff. All right, excellent. Um, last question. It's a really easy one, Jesse. Um, how can how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Um, so Lingo Live is on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, I am on LinkedIn personally, but I am not really on Twitter uh, or uh, Facebook a little bit. Um, uh -huh. 
but yeah, uh, are you talking me personally, or that's up, that's up to you? If they want to get in touch with you as you as you as as, as Jesse Ebbing, Ebbing uh, or yes. maybe um, and through Lingo Life, why not? Yeah, either way. Yeah, so I think that pretty much covers it. LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook for Lingo Live. I'll put that there. All right, great. Um, I think we've come to the end of, end of this interview. Thank you so much. Two people from Lingo Life, two different perspectives. Um, it's been um, it's been a joy. Are you very fluent in Spanish? Yeah, I would say I'm pretty fluent in Spanish. I mean, it's been 20-some years of like right. living in the cultures and working with people and yeah, loving people, liking of people, course. hating people, you know, just lots of emotions. I, here, I yeah. can, I can, under, I envy you for that. I'm going to get there one day. I'm going to get there. That's my objective. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, Jesse having um, number 94 from Lingo Life, the chief, hang on, I need to get that title right <laughs> again. The chief learning officer. Yes. Appreciate it very thanks, much. Chris. And I'm pretty sure we'll talk to each other in the future. Sounds good. I really appreciate your time. It's been great. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Adios. Adios, ciao. Jesse, thanks for coming on the show again. Uh, if you want to see the video cast of this episode, this podcast, or this video cast, rather, you can go to culturematters.com slash YouTube. Subscribe to my podcast. I would really appreciate appreciate if you do so. Also, leave a review in iTunes. That's very helpful for other people to discover this podcast. Um, what else do we need to say? This episode was produced by Janice Sheila. The music was by Ben Sound. My name is Chris Smith, and this was the Culture Matters Podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks' time with yet another guest. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.